My turn? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. You wide awake? Good, good, good. My privilege to be in here with you today and to bring a lesson to you. You've been given, I hope, as you came in. But I'll ask, if you don't have one of the lessons, uh, raise your hand and we'll get somebody to bring you one. Would you raise your hand real high and keep it up? And somebody got some extras back there. Danny, you send in some people right now. Okay, keep your hand up and they'll find you. A couple things at the outset. Louis, you didn't get this announcement. I just came up with it recently, and uh, I forgot to pass it along. Uh, Presidente Vincente Fox has just made an announcement that uh, next time there's Summer Olympics that Mexico won't be participating because everybody who can run, jump, and swim has already left the country. So uh, no offense to my Hispanic brethren. Uh, it is always a joy and an honor, and it's also humbling uh, to be in this spot. Anybody who's done it can tell you that because Mark does such a phenomenal job, and uh, he spoils us every week, absolutely spoils us every week, uh, not only with the lessons that he produces so powerfully and beautifully, but also with a PowerPoint. So when I'm here, you don't have a PowerPoint, sorry, you're just going to have to listen harder, but you do have uh, the lesson that... Uh, uh, we prepared, and thanks to Philip Sanoff for helping me get it to you and others that may have been involved. Um, I can't wait to tell Mark that I've turned his class upside down, or maybe Lewis will tell him in the next email exchange. But what I want to have you do is turn with me to the back of the lesson. That's what I mean by upside down. We're going to go to uh, the points for home first because I never have enough time. <laughs> All right? Is that fair? And I think Mark would probably agree he doesn't either. But uh, I, I tell you, I want to be sure. This is the thing Mark and I talked about before, uh, weeks ago, as we were talking about what to cover and what he wanted me to try to cover here. Uh, we want to make this practical. We, we can study all kinds of characters in church history. We can go into all the details of who said what, when, and where, and get into all those details that may bore you to tears. But we want it to be practical. We want it to be helpful to your life. We want it to make a difference. And today's lesson, I'll just admit to you, is not my cup of tea, okay? <laughs> I've tried as I worked through it, and it was a challenge. Athanasius has never been my favorite character. I'm sorry. But uh, I learned a lot about him. And as I prayed for God's uh, help in, in seeing what needed to be communicated to you, there are some things that are clear and obvious to me, and I think they're worth sharing. So, you know, don't bail out on me here at the beginning because I said that. <laughs> I've learned a lot, and I've tried to pack some of it in here for you. Let's look at the points for home, though. On The, uh, the pages aren't numbered, but it's number seven, um, front side of the fourth page. At the bottom, the first one I've made is that all of us will receive, we have received, and we will continue to receive criticism. What are you going to do with that is a big question. Whether it's coming from your wife or your kid or your parents or whoever, your co-worker or somebody down the street, what are you going to do with that criticism? Athanasius is a great example of someone who got tons of it. In fact, he got more than his share by 10 times or 100 times. And uh, we're going to talk about that some more. But, but what do you do with it? Some of us just get all huffy. Some of us get all arrogant. Some of us think that nobody should ever criticize us. Nobody should ever say anything negative about us when, in fact, what they're saying may be what? True. <laughs> it 
It may be true. Now, hopefully, if it's true, they're saying it gently. You know, they're saying it lovingly. Sometimes not, though. And too often, it's behind our backs. When we do hear about it, here's the point. We need to carefully analyze it. We really do. We need to learn from it. We need to, to see, is this true? And if so, does it mean that I need to make some changes? All of us resist change. It's just, it's just a principle of life. We get into a, we like to call it a routine, but it's really a rut many times. And we stay there. You know, and you close in both ends of that rut, what do you got? <laughs> a grave. Uh, and that's where some of us live. Unwilling to change, unwilling to be transformed by the power of Jesus Christ in our lives. Sometimes it's the critic in our lives, sometimes a maid or a child, whose message needs to be heard. And even when it's unbased, this is important, even when that criticism is false, it's not based on truth, it's trumped up like many of the charges were against Athanasius, then what does God call us to do? What kind of response does He challenge us to bring, like Jesus did, what? Patience, sometimes silence, uh, like a lamb to the slaughter, Jesus went to those who would execute him and even prayed for whom? For the very ones who nailed him to the cross. I thought that's where Rick was headed this morning to the last words of Jesus from the cross when he was talking about dying men don't waste words. What a powerful message and, uh, and a great testimony. But Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That's true. And sometimes our critics don't know what they're saying. They don't know how deep it hurts. But that's God's call on us about criticism, I believe. To respond as Jesus did. And of course, He didn't need to make changes, but we do very often. And to ask for His help in doing that. Number two. And by the way, let me, let me give you a passage of Scripture on number one. I didn't squeeze it in when I wrote this. But right down there to the side or underneath that, uh, number one, write Romans 12, 14 through 19. I'm not going to read it to you. I ask you to look at it later. But Romans 12 is where Paul is given all the, the very practical instructions on how to live. And what does justification by faith really mean? And the answer is what it means is bless those who persecute you. Live in harmony with all people. If at all possible, do what pleases as many people as possible. Now, if they're asking you to do something you know is wrong, it goes against your conscience, don't do it. But don't throw rocks at them as you walk away. <laughs> and don't spit at them and don't curse them. By the way, when we're studying the 4th and 5th and 6th centuries of church history, you're going to find some awful, awful, terrible, no good things done in the name of Christian religion. Does that make it good? No. Absolutely not. Does it break God's heart? Does it make Him angry? I think it does. And we're going to see some of that and hopefully learn from some of that. Also write down Matthew 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And there are a couple of sections of verses, verses 10 through 12, and also verses 38 through 44. In summary, what Jesus said again is, Blessed are you when you're persecuted. I want you to respond to that persecution with blessings, not cursings. I want you to know that the prophets before you were persecuted they were criticized, they were even killed, but they are, like Jesus, an example of one who prayed for those who persecuted them. You get down toward the end of chapter 5 in, in the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, and Jesus said, love your what? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, go the extra mile, turn the other cheek, give them more of your clothing than they demand, and so forth. 
And so it's a powerful call in our lives. Number two, points for home, perseverance. This lesson is all about, when you look at Athanasius and his commitment and determination, his devotion to what he believed was right, which is basically and often called the Nicene faith. That is the statement of faith about Jesus, who he is and how he related to the Father, as stated in the Nice in the council uh, by the Council of Nicaea in what we call the Nicene Creed, he was so determined, he was so persistent, and he is a good example. Not in every part of his life, but it, he's a good example of commitment and persevering. And I believe that's what the Christian life is all about. Uh, you look at Romans chapter five, for example, verses three through five, and Paul says, "When suffering comes, I want you to what? Rejoice." I want you to know that when you suffer and don't give up and don't give in and don't quit, then that produces endurance, which leads you to character, which leads to what? Hope. If you haven't read Romans 5, first paragraph lately, take a look at it. Suffering through perseverance, through character, leads to what? It leads to hope. And hope is what we all need. It's so easy to lose it. I hope we need it, not just in persecution, but in times of prosperity. Also write down 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, where at the end of a profound section about resurrection, Paul says, don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Don't quit. Stand firm. Know that your labor, when you do it for the sake of Jesus Christ, is not futile. It's not in vain. And there's one more passage, James 1, verse 12, where James admonishes us and all his readers that, that we ought to persevere no matter how hard the trials, no matter what comes against us, the obstacles, James 1, verse 12. And then number three, I've written down what I should have probably put as number one point for home. Theology does matter, exclamation point. I know a lot of us in our day and age don't want to mess with it. In fact, when you look at some of what I'm going to share with you in the lesson from Athanasius' life and his work, you're going to think, oh man, why does that matter? That's confusing to me. I can't figure out where you should put, you know, if it's just one little letter in homoousius or homoousius, that's a Greek, two Greek words that are going to blow your mind. But, <laughs> you know, it's just one little letter is the difference. And if you're like Constantine, you want to say, oh, that's just a theological trifle. That was his attitude. The Christian, quote, Christian emperor. You know, they're just over here messed up, tangled up, conflicted with a Theological trifle. Well, I think it's more than that. Theology does matter. When it comes right down to it, the issue at hand with Athanasius, give you a heads up, the issue is, who is Jesus? And how does he relate to God the Father? Very important. Is he divine? Or is he human? Or is there a chance that somewhere... The impossibility that he is fully human and fully divine, that that is correct. Uh, who knows? Some of the people, I'm sure, by and large across the empire were saying, oh, what does it matter? It does matter. And to Athanasius, the whole issue of salvation was hanging on this critical theological discussion who is Jesus? And how does he relate to God the Father? We're going to get more into that later. But let me just uh, remind you 
that Paul, as I wrote here, Paul and others had no tolerance for those who would change or pervert the basic gospel message about Jesus. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Twice in a row, Paul says, If anybody changes the gospel message I gave you, are you ready for this? Let them be eternally anathematized, condemned, accursed. It's strong language. Paul says, don't you change the message about Jesus. Don't you make him less than what he is and what he was and what I preached him to be. Really, really important for Paul and other writers. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, the word was with God, the word was God, the word in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was God. Who's the Logos? The word translated Logos is Jesus. I mean, the character being referred to, we find out in John chapter 1, verse 14, where John says, And the Word, Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, His grace, and we knew that He's the light of the world, so forth. Well, those are important words. Athanasius and others understood the importance of those words and held on to them. Another passage I thought of here is, uh, is Hebrews chapter 1. And uh, lest I forget to mention it later, I'll mention it here. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, Paul, uh, the writer, whoever write, wrote Hebrews, says, Jesus is the one through whom God reveals Himself, and He is the exact representation of God Himself. Note that, Hebrews 1 1 through 3. He is the, Jesus is the exact representation of God Himself. In Colossians chapter 1, there's a whole section, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And I know if you're writing these down, you don't have time to look at them now, but I hope you will later. Colossians 1, 15 following is a powerful, beautiful hymn, I believe, of the early church. And over and over in these verses, Paul says, quoting, I believe, from a hymn, that Jesus is top. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is over all, above all, through all, in all. Jesus holds it all together. He created it all. He is the image, here's the phrase, He is the image of the invisible God. Those words are important in the issue, the theological issues that we're going to deal with, and theology is important. Now let me add one more lesson for you, our point for home, before we get uh, beyond this. Number four, I would add, after I type this up, that God can use and does use sinful people. I think sometimes we get the idea that if anybody ever makes a big mistake, whoop, it's over. He should never stand up in front of an audience and say anything about Jesus Christ ever again. Uh, Gordon MacDonald, for example, the, uh, the great writer and author, uh, uh, editor of Christianity Today, and of other publications had a horrible fall. And he'll talk about it. He'll tell you about it. Gordon MacDonald has written some powerful books. Uh, for several years, he didn't stand in front of people and preach. He didn't write books because he was trying to figure out what is going on in my stupid life. But now I want to tell you, he and many others like him have some of the most powerful messages and testimony because they're just like Peter. See, Peter, after he, you know, kept putting his foot in his mouth and eventually got to that place where even while Jesus was in trial, he said three times, I don't know him. 
with swearing and cursing even. I don't know him. Don't throw me in the same bucket with Jesus Christ who's on trial now. I don't know who he is. At the end of those three denials, you remember, his eyes caught Jesus' eyes and there was immediate conviction, penitence, and Peter ran out weeping. And I'm sure he wept for a long time when he realized how far he had fallen. How, what a great shame he felt. But what about Peter from that point forward? Should he, should he just go to a cave somewhere and, and hermitize? You think he ought to be a monk to lead the monastic movement? No. Peter was a powerful spokesman for the gospel message. And Athanasius, who has lots of faults, by the way, <laughs> some really think he was a tyrant and, and a bad guy. Uh, on the other hand, many think he was a fantastic uh, honest and, and uh, upright man. But I want to make the point that Moses, Abraham, David, all of these outstanding leaders in the Bible and whose stories were told in great detail made what? They made mistakes. Let's put it more crass. They sinned. They sinned. They needed forgiveness just like you. Did that completely knock them out of service to God? No. Sometimes it may take a while for restoration and renewal, but God uses those who are needing and who are willing to admit their need of a Savior. Did you hear me? I don't want to leave this point until you hear me. <laughs> Athanasius and all church leaders before him and all church leaders after him will make mistakes. Please don't count them out. Please. Don't think that they are useless to God because just like you, they can be and they will be, if they're willing to be, they will be redeemed. Paul said, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 14 through 16, a passage you can write down with this one, he said, I am the worst of sinners. And if God can display his patience in me and uh, give me forgiveness, then he can do the same for you. When he writes to Timothy and down through the ages, to all of us. So I, I offer you those four points for home, and I had time to actually talk about them. All right. Let's go to the beginning of the lesson. Whoops. I fear that most of you have already read my illustration at the beginning here, but I'll just hurry through it. One of my favorite cartoons is the Far Side cartoon where you have two deer. It's a hunting season, their conversation. One of them says to the other, looking at his uh, mark on his chest, which looks like a target, he says, uh, heck of a birthmark you got there. And I've, I've, I've observed through the years in ministry that church leaders many times have the same birthmark, except they wear it right here involuntarily, right up here on the forehead between the eyes. And many church members feel like it's their duty to take pot shots. <laughs> I mean, really, there are some who think their spiritual gift is the criticism of the preacher. Uh, it's generally agreed that 10% of the membership of any church is opposing the preacher. It might be a little issue about this, that, or the other. It could be the color of the walls in some room. It could be uh, the, the kind of toilet paper that's being used in the rest. It could be the craziest kind of thing. But because he took a stand on it, or because he had an opinion, or because of whatever... Uh, they're opposed to him. 
at any point about 10% of a church. If there's 200, then there's going to be 20 people that just don't care for the preacher. And if they get a chance to verify, to undergird, to denigrate, or whatever, they're going to do it. Some of them shoot cannons, not just pot shots, and some of them drop bombs. Athanasius was constantly being criticized. He was a guy who was under attack. In fact, he had to run for his life more than once. Um, He was the Bishop of Alexandria, which we've seen on maps when Mark was teaching, is right at the top of the Nile, right at the entrance of the Nile, at the top of Egypt and, and the south part of the Mediterranean Sea. It was a key and very important city, the most important trade center of the Roman Empire, no doubt, no question, the most important trade center. And because of that, a lot of grain went in and out of that harbor. In fact, Athanasius had control of of a whole lot of that grain. It's a powerful position that he came into in 328 when he replaced the bishop uh, Alexander, who was a bishop of Alexandria. Important position, powerful. Because of that, I believe he wore an extra large target. (laughs) And uh, maybe it was over all of his body. And there were those who wanted to take him out. And they trumped up charges. Uh, On one occasion they said that Athanasius has instigated a strike in the harbor so that the grain cannot be distributed throughout the empire that's coming and going through this harbor. And so look, that's that's something that undercuts the authority and the the power of the emperor himself. So Constantine or Constantius or whoever's in power, you you better get after this guy. They were constantly coming up with charges, most of them trumped up. On one occasion, Athanasius was charged with murder, and he was put on trial. And right before the trial, he had workers for him and supporters who found the victim alive and well and brought him into the courtroom. Hey, now that would, that would pretty well seal your case, wouldn't it, Lewis? <laughs> Mark would love that. <laughs> Athanasius was constantly having to defend himself. Now, by the way, let me just parenthesis here. Paul had the same thing. Do you remember that? Especially if you read 2 Corinthians. Paul was under attack. There were those who were constantly trying to undercut him. Say, who does he think he is? You know, he can write well, but he doesn't speak well. Uh, How dare him tell you that he has apostolic authority? He's not one of the originals. And so forth and so on. All kinds of of ways in which uh, Paul and others in the New Testament world, were cut down. Athanasius, because of that, of his, uh, in his 45, rough, roughly 45 years of, of being a bishop of Alexandria, um, about a third of that, actually it was 17, I think, 17 years out of those 45, he was away from the city. Why? Because there was a threat on his life, because he was... A, he was expelled by the emperor because they had a synod and condemned him and deposed him as the bishop and they replaced him with somebody who was an Arian bishop and so forth. So he has a very interesting life. He traveled all over the place when he was running from his enemies and he carried with him the message, the message that was clear for him that Jesus was the one same substance as the Father. He was not subordinate. He was not... Uh, uh, he, was, he was opposing what is often called the subordinationism and uh, a variety of other isms we'll, we'll run into as we go through the lesson here. Now, what are the resources for Athanasius and learning about him? 
the main resource for learning about Athanasius are his own writings. We're going to run into those later on. But the question is, should we, should we believe everything that Athanasius says? And the answer is probably not. You know, should we believe everything you say? Probably not. <laughs> you, you need to have some kind of standard, don't you, for evaluating. Surely, most of us want, I mean, I know we all do want to be not liars. We want to be speakers of the truth. Uh, on one extreme, in appraisal of Athanasius, you have Edward Gibbon, who says, quote, you find in Athanasius a superiority of character and abilities which, have qual- which would have qualified him far better than the degenerate sons of Constantine for the government of a great monarch. You know, this is a good guy. He's reliable. He goes on to agree, uh, and most agree with him, that he is a model of propriety and honesty. A high-minded and prudent leader of genius constantly assailed by the false accusations and ignoble machinations of dishonest and mean-spirited adversaries. So he comes off looking really good for Gibbon and many others. On the other hand, there are those who have written fairly recently in evaluation of his life and description of his, of his activities. Timothy Barnes, in a book that uh, uh, 1993 entitled Athanasius and Constantius, you can read the subtitle there, calls him a liar. And it says he perverted the truth. Well, which is true? Well, the truth is that if you are, as the quote on the next page says, if you are in trying to be an impartial historian, that you do have to consider what other people say, other than Athanasius himself only. You have to consider the enemies. You have to consider the charges and accusations against him. But then you also have to look at what the context is and try to find your path uh, not in the extremes. Now, I got through with this lesson or this study and reading a bunch about this man, and I came to the conclusion, as I mentioned a while ago, that Athanasius is human. Surprise! He's a church leader that's human. He defends himself and sometimes slants the truth in his direction. Okay, have you ever done that? Why, sure you have. You do it every day almost. Athanasius did it, and he wrote it, and we can read it. But we can also hear about and find out about those who accused him of dastardly deeds. And we have to decide, are those true or not? What I want to say is, this is important, and we we said it already in the points for home, God can use anybody. I don't care what mistake you made, Moses, when you killed a man and then ran. I don't care how bad the denials were, Peter. When you said you didn't even know Jesus and here he is needing you like he's never needed you before. And you the the one who promised to always stand by him and always protect him. I don't care how bad the affair was and how, how long it lasted, David. I don't care how many children you had illegitimately. God can still redeem you and use you even as he did Abraham, despite his lie, and a variety of others. I think the Bible bends over backwards, don't you? I think the Bible bends over backwards to tell us about these key characters making serious mistakes so that we in turn can know not permission to go sin. We can know that when we do sin because we will sin because we're human. And again, that doesn't excuse it. But when we do We don't have to live in uselessness. We don't have to stay in worthlessness. We don't have to be covered with guilt. We can be redeemed by the same one who redeemed uh, these characters that were such powerful 
spokespeople for God and His glory. Athanasius is an example of that. He was born in somewhere between 295 and 299. The Catholic Encyclopedia wants to say 266 to 268. Uh, What matters about that is that he needs to be 30 years old by 328. Why? (laughs) He needs to be 30 years old by that year because that's when Alexander died. And Alexander kind of adopted this guy and groomed him and mentored him and had him ready to become his heir, not knowing when he was going to die, probably hoping he was going to live a lot longer than that. But in 328, uh, Athanasius is made bishop. And already his accusers are ready to say, he's not old enough. He can't be bishop of this great province and this whole big uh, area of jurisdiction. And, uh, of course, he had to defend himself. Uh, We don't know too much about that, but we can say that uh, he's born about that time. I love the story of Athanasius playing church. Now, if you grew up in a church, in a home or a family that went to church regularly, what did you do when you were a kid? Sometimes you probably played church. I was a preacher's kid. My wife's a preacher's kid. Forgive us for that. But uh, there were times when I was growing up with a younger sister, with an older sister and an older brother, we'd play church. And uh, sometimes I was the preacher, and sometimes I was the pew sitter, and sometimes I was the one who served communion, and sometimes I was the one that did something else, you know. But we played church. On one occasion, the story is told that Athanasius and his friends as kids were playing church. And Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria, was watching out of his window. It happened to be the anniversary of one of the martyrs' death, and and there's a special aura of uh, seriousness. But he's watching kids who are imitating the ritual of Christian baptism. And he sends somebody out there to get them. They come in. And Alexander the bishop thinks to himself, this is an omen. These kids are playing church because they should become church leaders. And so he took these kids in and kind of adopted them and gave them a good education. I don't know if that's all true or not, but it was circulating toward the middle and the end of the 4th century. And uh, if so... Uh, One of the other details was that Athanasius himself was the one playing the part of a bishop when uh, Alexander saw them and brought them in and got details of what they were doing. Well, later, not too much later, Athanasius becomes the actual bishop in Alexandria. He is groomed, even though despite humble origins, he comes through a good education, primarily religious, and he is groomed by Alexander. He becomes Alexander's assistant, and Alexander takes him to the Council of Nicaea. Now, what do you know about the Council of Nicaea? Two weeks ago, Mark told you quite a bit about it. And I may be repeating uh, some of this, but let me just kind of hurriedly take you through it, okay? Um, We've got to back up a little bit for the Arian controversy before we get to the Council of Nicaea. Who is Arius? Uh, We don't know a whole lot about him except when he arrives in Alexandria. I'm on the top of page uh, three here. Uh, We we don't know a whole lot about him, but Arius came to Alexandria eventually in 311 to be ordained as a priest. And uh, this is when Alexander was still the bishop, and he ordains him. Soon thereafter, Arius, who by the way was trained under Lucian of Antioch, and who was trained under Paul of Samosata, Samosata. Uh, these guys, both Lucian and Paul, later were known... In fact, even before this time, one of them was known as a heretic. They were condemned because of their heresy. They emphasized the humanity of Jesus so much to the exclusion of the deity of Jesus. Let me say it again. They emphasized the humanity of Jesus 
so much that it seemed to exclude the deity of Jesus. They came awfully close to what is often called adoptionism. Adoptionism is a heresy that said Jesus was not divine, he was not the Son of God, but he was adopted by God into a special relationship. Adoptionism had already been condemned in 268 in a special, 268, the special synod. But, but still, Arius was holding on to the strong emphasis on the humanity of Jesus. And he used Origen. He quoted from Origen, who was used on both sides of what became known as the Arian controversy. Also in the background, this is very important, second paragraph on page three. Very important. The Greek background or the Greek philosophy as a background for this whole controversy said one thing clearly. If you're going to be divine, you can't be fickle. Big word, 75 cent word as Rick said. If you're going to be divine, you are immutable. Does that ring a bell? Anybody know a passage in Hebrews 13 that says Jesus is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever? Then there's that passage in James chapter 1 that says that with the Father, uh, the, the Father doesn't change like shifting shadows. That same emphasis on immutability. If you're going to be divine, then you cannot change. I thought immediately about those Old Testament passages where it says God repented. What is that? Well, we don't want to call that uh, mutating. <laughs> we don't want to call that changing. He didn't change his nature. He didn't change his love. He didn't change his, he changed his response. So, so I think there's more here that needs to have been understood. But the Greek philosophy said, and it's very important to this controversy, God, if he's God, if he's divine, does not change. Okay, here's what it means. If Jesus was begotten, if he was created, then he is changed. And uh, he cannot be divine. He cannot be God himself. That's an impossibility. So this is very crucial. In fact, it'll come back up as we talk about Arius' response uh, to, I mean, Athanasius' response to Arius. So Arius arrives. He gets ordained as a priest. And what happens? Well, uh, Arius is a charismatic personality. He's a good speaker. He win he's winsome. He gets the people to... Uh, to uh, like him, and he, he makes good inroads in, in getting their following, and people, people come after him, they listen to him, not unlike Rick this morning, winsome, charismatic, very good communicator, and uh, you know, you listen to that guy week after week, by the way, and after a while, he might say something that, and I'm not accusing Rick or anybody else of doing this, I'm just saying, Somebody who has that kind of personality can begin to say things that are a challenge, maybe a stretch, and you begin to say, well, yeah, okay, maybe so. I hadn't thought about it that way. All right. And after persisting, he, by the way, is challenging Alexander. Arius begins to say, Alexander preaches like he is a Sabellian. He's guilty of the heresy of Sabellianism. And by the way, that I've defined here, uh, in, the, in the third paragraph on page three. I think that's where I put it, yeah. It's also called monarchianism or modalism, big words. But what it meant was it reduced the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to mere names, uh, to aspects of one divine person that is God. So previously, Sabellianism had already been put in a bad light, but now Arius is accusing 
uh, Alexander of being Sabellian and of emphasizing or of avoiding uh, the, the humanity of Jesus. Anyway, Alexander was patient. Alexander was gentle. Alexander didn't want conflict, but eventually he felt compelled to call a synod. In 318, there was a big meeting of bishops, and they condemned Arius and his false teaching. They accused him of adoptionism in a more sophisticated form, and they sent him packing. But Arius was not going to give up so quickly. Arius went to his old friend, Eusebius of Nicodema, bottom of page 3. Eusebius of Nicodema, not Eusebius of Caesarea. We've already talked about him. We've read his history of early church. Uh, we've, we've talked about, in fact, when I taught you a lesson on the canon, we talked a good bit about Eusebius of Caesarea, important in the history of the canon. And uh, eventually Eusebius of Caesarea was pretty much pegged an Arian uh, who would... Uh, uh, be on Arius' side. But Eusebius of Nicodema was trained under Lucian, and he took Arius' side. He began to write letters. He began to campaign. He wanted other bishops who weren't at this 318 synod to side with him and with Arius. He was making good headway. But Alexander said, hold everything. He had gotten a copy of the letter. <laughs> and he wrote what is called the deposition of Arius. I thought that was really curious in view of Marx being a lawyer. Here we, got, uh, here we got a bishop writing a deposition of Arius. In other words, he's explaining why in the Synod of 318 uh, Arius was condemned or he was uh, corrected, he was rebuked, and he was kind of tossed out. Arius' thought, two things were key to it. Bottom of the page three. Two elements. Number one, God is by nature not a creature, he said. And if the Logos became human in Jesus, he must be a creature. Jesus is not divine. Very clearly, he's saying. And number two, he said, salvation is an issue of a process of grace and free will. And if Jesus communicates salvation to us, it must be by grace and free will in a manner that we can imitate or emulate. But if he, but if he was God, then salvation is not something that he could accomplish. So Jesus could not have been God and get us salvation. That's the way Arius reasoned. It doesn't make sense, I know. But those were two uh, key elements. And he keyed on a word, begotten. There's a word you're familiar with from the Bible, probably. What does that mean? Well, we usually think of procreated, or uh, the, the process of reproduction. And when you use that word about God and carry it too far in that analogy, it, it really fouls you up. But the idea he used was that if Jesus was begotten, he must have had a beginning in time and not be God who is eternal and, and unbegotten. One observation I ran across, and I thought this was crucial. Arius is thinking in, in summary is that Jesus was somewhere between fully God and fully man. He wasn't fully divine and he wasn't fully human, but he didn't know what to do with him. So he kind of put him in between. He had pre-existence, he would say, but he was not God. Uh, he had a role, perhaps, in creation, but he was created himself. Uh, okay, maybe he holds everything together, but he was the firstborn of creation. That phrase was used to Arius' advantage in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, not fully God, not fully man, something in between. He was a creature at the top of the creatures. <laughs> he was uh, 
uh, better than, higher than, more powerful than, supreme over all the creatures, but he was not God. And that's the issue. Why is this important? I think I've already explained that. Gnosticism, though, which takes us all the way back to our biblical literacy days and classes, uh, had the same issue, didn't it? Do you remember that? Wasn't it the same issue? It seems to me, and this is just my thought, that the devil is hard after this one. From the very outset in the early church, the devil was hard after this one. Let's either destroy his humanity, the devil seems to say, or let's destroy his divinity. Let's don't give him both. Don't allow that he's fully man and fully human. So figure out something, even if we have to use Greek philosophy, even if we have to use church leaders, let's undermine the being of Jesus that he is altogether both divine and human. It is important. Under, as a branch of Gnosticism, which didn't know what to do with Jesus, and they came up with some crazy ideas, the docetics, the docetism it's called, said he just seemed to be human. He was divine, they said, but he just seemed to be human. He wasn't really human. It was just an illusion. That was their explanation. And here's what John had to say in response. Look at 1 John. It's on the page here. 1 John 4, 2, and 3. Verse 4, in a way, you could say, Arianism simply, I'm sorry, I've gone ahead. The quote from 1 John 4 is, Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That's the issue for John. Jesus in the flesh. Is that true or not? John said it better be. If it's not, then that spirit speaking that word is not from God. He goes on to say, Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. So so you might say, and this is a stretch, this is an oversimplification, let me say clearly, Arianism shadows, seems to kind of be like or have some similarities to earlier heresies from the very outset in the issue of the divinity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. Now the council. The council of Nicaea was called by, of all people, not a bishop, called by the emperor. Why? Why would Constantine want to get into the mix of bishops and churches and church leadership and all of that? Well, I'll I'll just tell you what I think. I think it was all political. I think Constantine liked Christianity. I think he may have been genuine in reporting the the, the thing about winning the battle there in, in, uh, what was it, 312 uh, against uh, Maximian. By, by putting the cross, which looked more like a chi, the first letter of the word Christ, on his shields. Uh, don't doubt any of that. I, I, I'm okay with that. But I think that Constantine was not fully Christian. I think that he's posing as Christian, and his main goal in the Synod of Nicaea, or the Council of Nicaea, was to unite the political elements in his kingdom, in his empire. So let's bring the church together here. Let's resolve this theological trifle. Let's get everybody on the same page so we can all be happy in this one big happy empire. (laughs) And so he calls them together. I love the scene. Now this is described in some detail. When they meet, they're in the palace, the imperial palace in Nicaea, which is close to Constantinople. Constantinople is still under construction as they're moving the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to where? Constantinople, now known as Istanbul. They come to Nicaea. Constantine pays for all the travel. 
He pays for all the lodging. He pays for the whole nine yards. And they come in, and there are 318 of them. Eusebius of Caesarea reports. Another source I read said there were 220. There's a lot of guys in any case. 28 of them are, are, are clearly and have stated that they are Arian, that they're siding with Arius and Eusebius of Nicomedia and uh, the other uh, bishop of, uh, of Nicaea. Constantine comes into that celebrated hall with all those bishops in his royal purple robe and he climbs up to a throne, kind of like this uh, uh, beautiful window up here, and he sits on the throne and there's no question about it, Constantine sees himself as the bishop of all bishops. Later, Eusebius of Caesarea, who was really kind of cuddling up to Constantine, wrote a theology of the empire. And he pictured Constantine in this theology as, you know, really right up there next to God almost, uh, certainly next to Jesus in any kind of subordinationism. Well, despite the political uh, motivation of Constantine, they were discussing some important issues. There were a lot of other issues, like what do you do with voluntary uh, eunuchs? Uh, I don't know how that made it on the list, but uh, those were all secondary. There was a question about, uh, okay, how much power does the Bishop of Alexandria and the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Antioch and all these guys have? Uh, well, more power, for, more power there than in some of the other cities who were not so important. But all those were secondary issues to the real issue, which was how are we going to resolve the Arian controversy? And finally, after two months, they came up with what we call the Nicene Creed. I've given it to you again. I'm not going to read it to you. The bottom of page four, top of page five. And I'm almost out of time. Uh, this didn't resolve the issue. This just flat didn't resolve the issue. But Constantine had put in here a technical term. I think it was probably his own personal chaplain or bishop that advised him or promoted it for him. Then he proposed it and all the bishops agreed. Uh, why wouldn't they? Here's the guy that's funding the whole thing and who is in power. And in fact, whatever they decree, he's going to make it what? He's going to make it imperial command. You want to be in that church? <laughs> Talk about separation of church and state? I don't know. But in this case, imperial command is going to come out of this council. And uh, the key word is the word up here in the third line from the top on page 5, homoousius. That word is not in the Bible. You won't find it. It means one substance. It's translated in Old English, consubstantial. A few years later, the son of Constantine and his compadres who were primarily Arian they argue and argue and persuade many people to agree with them that this word ought to be changed to homoousius. Add one letter between those middle double O's and it means of similar substance. Not one substance, but similar substance. In other words, Jesus wasn't exactly the same. He was just almost the same. He was similar in substance to God the Father. That was what they came up with. And Athanasius fought tooth and nail to say no. He said that is rank heresy. After this council and the condemnation of Arius that happened there, then you have an incredible change. It's like those who were secretly Arian in that council came out of the woodwork. 
They reacted against this word, this technical term that became the key word and the test word for the uh, Nicene Creed. And before you know it, it's amazing that Arianism regained momentum and almost became the orthodox uh, teaching of the church on the humanity, divinity of Jesus, the nature of Jesus, except for a little guy who was known as the Black Dwarf. And that's how Athanasius got nicknamed the Black Dwarf. I thought that was curious. He's also known as the father of orthodoxy because he's the one when other defenders of the Nicene Creed were discredited as heretical about this or that, it was Athanasius who stood firm and who argued, who defended, who devotedly and diligently eventually won the case. He was the one champion of the Nicene Creed which calls for the nature of Jesus as one substance with the Father. You'll notice, by the way, if you read the Nicene Creed, that it only gets a small, tiny, tiny, tiny mention of the Holy Spirit. That will come up in the years to follow, and Mark will deal with that later on. I've got to hurry. Bottom of page 5 has a great story that I don't even have time to tell you, but, but it'll give you a chuckle if you haven't uh, read it when you read it later on. Uh, Athanasius wrote two key treatises. They're mentioned here with a brief summary, or at least the emphasis of them. Middle of page 6. On the Incarnation of the Word, powerful, still regarded as a classic, still in print. That's amazing, isn't it? Uh, when it was written back in the middle of the 4th century. And then the second main treatise was Four Discourses Against the Arians, which was polemical, you could guess, against the uh, Arian controversy. Constantius died in 361. That's the son of Constantine. And his brother was in one half of the empire, Constantius was in one half and eventually had the whole empire when, when his brother died, Constans. And then Julian was uh, put in after Constantius died. And then Jovian became came the next emperor very briefly. And then after uh, Jovian was Valens. And uh, in these quick exchanges of emperors, it was kind of like Bishop Yo-Yo. It was like, okay, you're in, okay, you're out, okay, you're in, okay, you're out. And Athanasius was exiled and brought back and exiled and brought back. And as we said earlier, five times he was exiled. And in many of those cases, it was only a matter of a short time. The last one, I believe it was the last one, the Roman troops actually came into the church building in Alexandria as he's leading worship and they are there to arrest him and the whole church protects him. I love this story. It's a great story. At the end of Athanasius, toward the end of his time, Athanasius is surrounded by his people. The Roman troops can't get to him and he sneaks out the back and he retreats for six years and he lives with the monks. I think that's when he got uh, acquainted with uh, St. Anthony and wrote out of that the book that Mark covered with you last week. But Athanasius had to run for his life more than once and eventually, though this will surprise you, eventually he, uh, he made it. Uh, back to Alexandria and had seven years of peace and quiet as the bishop. That just blows my mind. Here's a guy who had to run for his life and come back and run for his life. And then eventually at the end, he's got seven years as a well-seasoned, now much more gentle <laughs> old man who is able to die in his own bed, surrounded by those who love him and admire him. And he is given great tributes for what he accomplished and what he did. A summary of his theology is given to you on page uh, 6, I think it is, or what is it, 7? Um, on page 7, I'm not going to go over that because we're out of time. Let me leave a prayer and thank you again for listening for what may have been a real challenge.
as we went through some tough part of church history. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for all the the sacrifices that have been made, for all the efforts that have been uh, uh, given in the cause of holding on to the truth and of uh, down through the ages of trying to, to bring people to Jesus. God, we're so grateful for Jesus. And in all the midst of this church history, help us not lose the focus on who He is and how powerful the incarnation really is and how that He really is altogether human and altogether divine, not homogenized and not half and half, uh, altogether fully deity. Father, we thank You that You came and revealed Yourself through Him, that You save us through His sacrifice as a sinless atonement for our sins. We thank You for revealing Yourself through Him as a gentle, loving, merciful, compassionate God who wants to forgive us if we'll come to You and receive it, and who is called then to be transformed by the power of Jesus in us. May that transformation happen, Father, as we learn from these church leaders, even from their mistakes. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless.